All right, so good evening. This year is dedicated to the good health of Ita Bhat Chaya Sara, who is ill, and we wish her a very speedy refuah shlema, and may, may the merit of this year help things along, and more importantly, may God help her, and may she recover speedily. There's a, one thing that people have a rough time getting their arms around when they learn Tanakh, is that it's not a history book. Because it sounds like a history book, there's all kinds of history in there. But in all directions, it's a disaster if you read it as a history book. In other words, there are things that happen that we care about. There are foundational stories. There's all kinds of things that we all learn that are true. But it's, what it really is, is it's prophecy that uses history to convey its prophetic messages. There is a world of difference, both in terms of how we should be reading the book. In other words, we're interested in what are the religious messages. That doesn't just come from knowing what happened. Tanakh is not all about what happened. It's a very selective presentation of events, told from a religious, moral value system. That's trying to convey those values. There's one principle that our sages teach that just about every single classical commentator accepts. The one exception is Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman or Nachmanides, who in the Torah refuses to accept it dogmatically. But all the other commentators follow the rabbinic lead. And that principle is called En Mukdam Umeuchar Torah. There is no early and late in the Torah, literally. And what that means is that the Torah is not necessarily conveyed in chronological sequence. And the reason why they are interested in, meaning even in in historical narratives, you cannot assume that because chapter 1 comes before chapter 2, that chapter 1 happened before chapter 2. It might have. In fact, if there's no reason to think otherwise, it's a fair assumption. But it doesn't have to be that way. And sometimes there are things in the text that suggest the opposite. There are things that make it either clear or at least clear enough to some that things are out of order. Well, why in the world would a historical, prophetic narrator put things out of order? Yeah, so why would he? Because there's a thematic Because there's thematic. The point is, if, if you're trying to teach a lesson, usually you can do that by presenting events in sequence. But there are times that that really gets in the way. So much so that prophetic authors would prefer to put things out of chronological sequence, and that way you have a theme that's being developed, or a priority system that's being developed, and that's more important, that trumps the historical narrative. This is, this is so important. And, and it's so important not only in the Torah, but it's so important in all biblical narrative. We always have to be on the alert for this sort of thing because whenever something is out of chronological sequence, that's actually the narrator waving to us and saying, hi, I'm trying to teach you a lesson here. Right? It's actually better when things are out of order because then we know that the author or the final editor, depending on the book, is trying to teach something that trumps the historical sequence. Right, so it's actually very handy. So tonight, dealing with the book of Joshua, this is part two. Last time we dealt with Joshua's development as a leader. This time we're going to deal with selected texts in the book of Joshua where at least several commentators think that things are out of order. And there's reason why they think it's out of order. And that gives us a signal, hey, maybe these are where we can find the most important lessons of the book which is useful for a survey course in particular, because, hey, if you only get two shots at an entire book, you really want to get as many important lessons as possible within two sessions, right? But even if you're not, even if you're actually doing it in depth and you're going week by week and plugging through the text, this is the sort of stuff that I like to dwell on, because, again, the prof- anytime the pro- prophet is leaving behind fingerprints, I jump all over that. That's something that's incredibly valuable. Now, again, if it's in sequence, that's also helpful, but particularly good. So here we go. The first instance... Hey, do you have the page? Okay, great. It's right at the beginning of the book. If you look at source number one, here's the very beginning of the book of Joshua, which we looked at partially last time. Let's look at it again. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moshe's attendant, or Moses' attendant, My servant Moses is dead. Prepare to cross the Jordan together with all this people into the land that I am giving to the Israelites. So God tells Joshua, okay, This is your moment. You're going to lead the people across the Jordan River into the promised land. Every spot on which your foot treads I give to you as I promised Moses. No one shall be able to resist you as long as you live. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Very good words of encouragement. We saw all kinds of encouragement last time. 
And then, God continues, go through the camp. I take that back. This is Joshua now talking to the, to the officers. Joshua speaks to them. After God tells him to go, Joshua swings into action, goes to his officers, or officials, whatever you want to call them. Go through the camp and charge the people thus. Get provisions ready, for in three days' time you are to cross the Jordan in order to enter and possess the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a possession. Okay. It's very encouraging that as soon as God gives Joshua the word, Joshua up and goes, gets everybody ready, tells his officers to get moving. Three days we're crossing the Jordan River. Mark your calendars about this three-day thing. It'll come back, it'll come back in, our, in our discussion. Chapter 3 opens up. Three days later, the narrative just picks up from where we just read. Three days later, the officials went through the camp and charged the people as follows. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God being born by the Levitical priests, you shall move forward, follow it. Okay, voila, they do as they are commanded. Three days go by, the officers get everybody together, and then chapters 3 and 4 are the narrative where they cross the Jordan River. If you haven't read that story recently, well... I want to say that God splits the Jordan River, but it's not quite right. The, the parallel is to the splitting of the Red Sea. It's just that there's a difference between a sea and a river. So God has logistics to overcome here. God wants to create a miracle that parallels the original exodus from Egypt. The thing is that when you split a sea, okay, it actually splits. You have water on this side and water on that side, and the Israelites go right down the middle. With a river, God made it stop but then the stuff that was on this side just flowed downstream and went away. So it actually made a pile. So you had to have a piling of the Jordan, which is meant to emulate the splitting of the Red Sea. It's just that because it's a river, it looked a little different. But it's the same, you know, same sort of miracle. In fact, if we did not have chapter 2, we would not have missed it. Because this is just, chapter 3 just picks up where chapter 1 left off. Chapter 1 is Joshua ordering the officials... To get moving in three days, we're crossing the Jordan. Three days later, they do it. Okay, so far, so good. Ah, but see, then there's chapter two. Chapter two is this truly fabulous story, one of my all-time favorites, actually, of a Canaanite prostitute named Rachav. And Rachav betrays her people. What happens is Joshua sends spies. Here's the story of chapter two. Sends two spies who, for the record, I don't know who they are because the text doesn't name them, but they are the worst spies in the history of the world. Because as soon as they get there, the king of Jericho knows that there are Israelite spies. So I'm thinking maybe they have their tzitzit hanging out in the back. I can't figure out how they were so obvious so fast. But boy, oh boy, they gave themselves away. And before you know it, the king is all over them. Okay, that's the main story. Now, Rahav, the prostitute, chooses to betray her city. Jericho and side with the Israelites. She thinks that the Israelites are going to win. So what she does is she hides the spies, prepares their escape, and says, hey guys, I saved your skins. You owe me big. And they say, okay, what do you want? She says, when you come back and God gives you this city, I want you to save me and my family. And they say, you have a deal. All you got to do to make this work is stay in your home. Do not go out. There's a red string you got to tie so that way we know where you are. Everything is cool. They swear to her. Everything is, everything is all good. Does everybody have story sheets as you're coming in? I can, I can rectify this also. Robert, don't worry. I'm, I'm ready for you. So that's the gist of the story. The spies come back saying, wow, the Canaanites are scared stiff of us. That's, the, that's how the story unwinds. But one of the key kickers for our discussion is in source number three. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, saying, Go reconnoiter the region of Jericho. So they set out, and they came to the house of a harlot named Rachav and lodged there. Dot, dot, dot. Okay, then all the story that I just told you. She said to them, Make for the hill, so that the pursuers may not come upon you. Stay in their hiding three days until the pursuers return. Then go your way. So for keeping score, so they're at Rachav's house for a night. Then Rachav says, Go hide for three days. All right, so if your calendars are marked properly, when the spies return to Joshua, where will they find him? Across the Jordan River. Because we all know that they crossed on the third day. This is why this, this, is why this sort of thing matters, right? In other words, I, don't, I, I can't say that I have a vested interest in writing a history book where I have to write an outline, a chronological outline of when these things happen. That's not what this is about. 
Here you have a prophetic narrative intruding into the primary story, which is Joshua getting the people ready. Three days later, the people cross the Jordan. Miracles happen. Everything is good. Then we read about this, and suddenly we have four days. And yet, they went straight to the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers turned back. And so the pursuers, searching all along the road, did not find them. And yet, you don't have this in the text that you have in front of you, but you'll have to trust me or look it up. They come back east of the Jordan. They cross the Jordan River to get back to Joshua. The camp hasn't moved yet. So we have this quirky day thing. Meaning the next day, the Israelites then go. But I thought that they already went, if you're keeping score. Because we have four days of the spy story. Now, there are ways of fixing this. And our commentators think, don't worry. You know, three days can mean on the third day, or th- things like that. There are ways of keeping the narrative in order. Rashi doesn't think so. And later commentators don't think so either. Rashi, the the great 11th century commentator of northern France, who pretty much changed the world of Bible interpretation overnight. It's really crazy, his achievement, just to tell you one of them. Over the course of two years, I want to introduce all of our, our, our usual suspects of commentators. Rashi is among the most famous, if not the most famous of all of them. He was so good so fast that it immediately, remember, this is not only without the internet, this is without a printing press. Right? That's the impressive thing. Without a printing press, his manuscripts spread throughout the entire Jewish world immediately, and, this is perhaps even cooler from a certain point of view, were instantly translated into Latin, and right away many church fathers started studying him because he had the best commentary they had ever seen. In fact, church fathers debated, is it okay to study the work of a Jew? This is a very important debate going on in the 12th century as these texts were all translated into Latin. Where some said, what do you want? He's fantastic. They're like, okay, but... His afterlife is not going to happen. How could you study the works of a Jew? And there were huge fights within the church. Is it okay to study Rashi? Right? Really, really interesting. Bottom line is some obviously did, and he had an enormous impact immediately on everybody. So Rashi insists that chapter 2 came before chapter 1, based on this three-day problem. He says that, in fact, Joshua sent spies before God ever spoke to him. And many commentators follow suit, yeah? I'm not sure if this doesn't go into your question. The issue of um, that the spies were going to the hills uh, for three days. Now, is that day when they were told counted as the first day? That's the the way of fixing it. Your question is exactly right. In other words, those commentators who don't wish to see these narratives as out of order can easily fix it using your question. And that's what they do. Because then it would make sense that uh, Joshua and company had crossed the river already because they'd be there. Well, we know that they didn't cross the river because the spies returned to them. The issue is you can still tweak around with the three-day thing, and that's how you can can work with it. But Rashi and several other commentators disagree and say that chapter 2 occurred before chapter 1, which is amazing. So then the question becomes, well then, let's say he's right. So why not just put chapter 2 first? Why not begin the book of Joshua with, Joshua sent spies, etc. And then God spoke to Joshua. Right? In other words, according to Rashi, we have a thematic change of the order. Well, what themes are, is our prophetic narrator now trying to do for us? That's the key question. That's what tonight is all about. What do you gain thematically by putting chapter 1 in the chapter 1 spot? Yeah. I think we want to start by connecting Yoshua to Moshe and seeing it as a seamless transition. Mm-hmm and that he's now going to carry out exactly what he's supposed to. And we definitely don't want the spy story to be first, because spy stories have a negative resonance for us. And even if you can show the positive and the differences between this spy story and the other spy story, as soon as you read that, that he sends spies from Shittim, where also something terrible happened before in, in, uh, in Barnizar, we, we start to get nervous. Riley, a Barbanel really, really blows a gut somewhere in the middle of it because he's, he's like, not only are spy stories dangerous, but Joshua was one of the spies in the original story. He should know better. So Barbanel spends time discussing exactly what you just suggested, that there are severe differences between the two, and this is almost a corrective measure to the earlier story. All the same, your point may be well taken. What else might we say? What do we gain by putting chapter one first and chapter two second, rather than just writing it in order the way that the way that it happened, if Rashi's right, yeah? Well, she, I think, directly upset it at first, and that's really the succession story. Okay, good. you got to yeah. start with something to say why Joshua's in the lead now. Good. So I agree with all of this. I think that it's critical for chapter one to be first for a whole pile of reasons. Leading the way is what Suri said. 
the whole book of Joshua, one of the, a couple of the most important themes are succession from Moses to Joshua, and for that matter, succession from the Torah to a prophetic book. Chapter 1 does that immediately. In fact, Moses' name appears more times in chapter 1 of Joshua than Joshua's name, even though Moses is dead. Moses' presence is so intensely felt because the point is to show succession. Right? So right away we, we learn, as soon as we open up the book, Joshua is the legitimate and proper successor of Moses. He receives prophecy like Moses. He's ready to lead the people like Moses. We're feeling great. If you start with spies, even if that happened first, that kills it. Right? Nothing bad about the spies. Then Suri says you might have additional problems if you start the story with spies. Because, well, how does that make you feel? Especially, it's like, oh no, we don't even have any context. So these are very important themes to drive home. There are also many literary parallels. I'm not going to, I don't have charts here because that would just take too long. But there are many linguistic similarities between Joshua chapter 1 and the book of Deuteronomy. Like tons. So you get the impression that the author has book of Deuteronomy open. He is drawing from the language. He is trying to show that the book of Joshua is the natural successor and heir to the Torah. And he's definitely showing that the person Joshua is the natural heir to to Moses. All of these messages would be significantly compromised if the narrative was just placed in chronological sequence. Right? So that likely is, if Rashi is right, that the chronology is out of order. I think that you're teaching some very important themes. Let's move on to the next example. After the Israelites crossed the Jordan River in chapters 3 and 4, they have that massive circumcision. I'm just reviewing the skeleton of the book as I go along. Hey, that's what you, can, you can get away with things like this in a survey course, right? Chapter 5 is where you have that mass circumcision where all the males who had not been circumcised for the last 40 years have a huge brit milah, a huge circumcision ceremony, followed by the Passover. That's just that's when, that's when it all happens. And then comes chapters 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 6 is the Battle of Jericho, which is famed for the walls tumbling down, even though, for the record, that is so not what the book of Joshua is concerned with. The walls tumbling down part takes literally one half of one verse. What is very important to the author of the book of Joshua is the ritual. There's an incredible ritual, okay? On the first day, everybody's got to walk around one time. And on the second day, everybody's got to walk around one time. And on the seventh day, everybody's got to walk around seven times. Blow the shofar road. Yell your heads off. Right? That's what gets a lot of airtime in Joshua chapter 6. And the point seems to be, well, if you observe God's command, God will come through for you. But then the God coming through part, which is what makes Jericho so famous in the popular mind, literally just half of a verse. It's not about the miracle. It's really about how the Israelites were faithful. Okay? So that's chapter 6. In the course of... I can, I can rectify I can rectify it all, so hang on. Surely... One thing that happens in the course of chapter 6 is after the walls come tumbling down, the narrative goes out of its way to say, the spies from chapter 2, tell everybody, okay, soldiers, here's the house of Rahab the prostitute. We swore by God's name that we would spare her and her family. Nobody touched this home, and they spare her. And then the narrative concludes, and Rahab and her family dwelled among the Israelites until this very day, meaning she integrated on some level into the people of Israel. Cool. That's chapter 6. Then comes chapter 7. Joshua, in the course of the Battle of Jericho, had instructed the Israelites that there's going to be a cherem. Cherem is where everything in the city of Jericho is taboo. It's sacred. It belongs exclusively to God. And that means you have to destroy the destroyables and take the precious metals and dedicate them to the temple fund. But you can't keep any of that stuff. That's the rule for the city of Jericho. Unfortunately, chapter 7 kicks off that there's one guy, just one his name is Achan, from the tribe of Judah, who saw some precious metals, and he saw a really nice fur coat. And he just wanted it, so he took it. And he hid it under his tent, under the ground, and God is wrathful, because the taboo, the cherem, has been violated. Nobody else even knows about this, right? It's just him privately, so we, the readers, we know too much. But the Israelites don't know what's going on at all. They think, okay, we were faithful, God saved us, we're ready for the next town. Let's go to the eye. The next town in, in line. So they go to attack the eye, and the spies, the, Joshua sends spies again, and they say, ah, oh, wimpy town, two, three thousand troops, tops, we'll, we'll take them, no problems. And they lose. 
They run up to the city expecting God to do something remarkable and instead they get clobbered by a rain of arrows and or whatever they were using and 36 men die and the Israelites run away. Morale-wise, this is a total, besides the fact that it's just tragic that 36 people who had nothing to do with Achan Sin die, that's sad enough, but it's also morale-wise, this is a disaster because suddenly Israel is, with God on their side, Israel is one and one, Right? And you don't want to have losses when God is on your side. That's really bad. In fact, if you have losses, you start to think, what? God is not on your side. And if God is not on our side, how in the world are we going to beat the Canaanites? They have walled cities. They have chariots. We have nothing. Right? We are seriously outclassed. It drives me crazy, incidentally. Whenever I teach the early books of Tanakh, the Israelites are always militarily outclassed. And by far. We are so behind militarily. Like, our only hope in keeping, keeping scores if we're righteous, because then we get God, and that beats chariots. But without that, we're done. We, we have no good way of fighting superior forces. Right? It's only King Solomon who finally built an infrastructure to say, here's a good idea. Let's have enough money to build stables and create the infrastructure and have chariots. And suddenly, nobody attacked us anymore. Right? It was just a great deterrent. He, he wasn't an offensive general. He simply said, now nobody's going to mess with us, and he was right. So that, that was a cool move by Shlomo. I always appreciated that he did that. But for hundreds of years, we're being raided and, and terrorized, and Israel really had no good defense. So the chapter 7, after this happens, the people go bananas. Joshua comes crying to God, and God says, What are you crying for? Israel has sinned. You have to get rid of the sinner. And so they do. They have a whole ritual procedure, and by the end of it, Achan and his family are executed. If you're a theologian, you may be bothered by and his family part of that sentence. Okay, you're right, I'm bothered too. Any human being should be bothered by that sentence. But that's how God's justice works in Tanakh. God punishes families, not just the individual. Courts are not allowed to. Human courts are not allowed to punish families for the sins of the father. But God sometimes does. And this is one of those cases where he does. So there's a lot to be said about that. Sorry to just throw out a sentence. But hey, it's a survey course. When we do this in depth together, we'll go crazy. And, 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 we'll, and we'll discuss all these you know, major issues that come out. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure uh, about this comparison because I don't remember the spelling. But there was a king by the name of, well, in English it would be called Rehoboam. Yeah. Uh, how is that spelled in Hebrew? It's, it's Rehav Am. What about? Because I'm looking at Rahab. And are they cognate names? And is there a, perhaps a relationship that goes back to her, I, to, I, that, to that king? I, I can't tell you no. But, 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 but there's no reason to, to... I mean, you're right, it's the same letters. In a Scrabble game, if you had Rachav on the board, you could add yeah, Am later. Before, I know it's proper nouns, you can't really do that anyway, but yeah, fine. Yeah, you know what I'm asking. What, what, but but, but it, would be, it would be the same letters. Good observation, all the same. All right, so that all being said, so that's what happens. And after Achan is killed, then comes chapter 8, where the Israelites go back and fight against the Ai, and this time they beat it. Okay, the end. And then the end of chapter 8 rolls in. And here we have this nice ceremony that occurs in source number four. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. Indeed, he did. This appears in the Torah in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy and also in chapter 27. As it is written in the book of the teaching of Moses, an altar of unhewn stone upon which no iron had been wielded. They offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and brought sacrifices of well-being. So this is right near the city of Shechem. That's where, that's where we are geographically. Shechem, by the way, it's just a really interesting fact about Shechem, is that the Israelites never had to conquer it. Joshua conquered all kinds of cities. Shechem, which is one of the most important ones, never was not taken. It just Israelites had access to it. And so there's all kinds of fun speculation that since Jacob's sons originally captured the city, it sort of remained in quasi-Israelite hands. Interesting. So regardless, here they are in Shechem having this ceremony. They built this altar. Verse 32, And there on the stones he inscribed a copy of the teaching that Moses had written for the Israelites. So he wrote at least a piece of what we call the Torah. All Israel, stranger and citizen alike, with their elders... Officials, magistrates, stood on either side of the ark, facing Levitical priests who carried the ark of the Lord's covenant. Half of them faced Mount Gerizim, and half of them faced Mount Eval. And Moses, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded them of old, in order to bless the people of Israel. 34. After that, he read all the words of the teaching. 
the blessing and the curse, just as written in the book of the teaching. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua failed to read in the presence of the entire assembly of Israel, including the women and children and strangers who accompanied them. Beautiful. There's this big ceremony over here. The archaeologist, I think, I, I just heard this from a friend of mine. His name is Adam Zertal. I love Shalom. Apparently just passed away. I have, to, I have to confirm this, but a friend of mine who lives in Israel told me, so I, I believe him. Adam Zertal in 1985 published an article that he thought he found this altar. He certainly found some kind of structure in the Mount Deval area, dated it to the right time period, thought it looked like an altar, and said, hey, cool, this might very well be Joshua's altar. And maybe it is. Of course, right away, other archaeologists dis- disputed that. Some thought it wasn't an altar at all. Some thought it might be an altar, but not this altar. I don't know. To me, it doesn't make or break my faith in any regard, whether or not... I would just think it would be astoundingly awesome. If we have a, I, I like it when you have a piece of the biblical world. Not because that proves that the story occurred, but because it's just amazing to get a living, tangible sign from that world. If any, anything that Joshua touched... Phew, Man, I'd want to go visit that thing in a hurry. So the question is, when did this happen? Let's stick with our topic, which is, when did this story occur in the sequence? Well, what does the beginning of the paragraph say? At that time. So, okay, so following my narrative that I've been telling you, so when did this happen? After I, sure. Yeah, chapter 6, they capture Jericho. Chapter 7 and 8, they capture the eye. And now they build this altar. Why think otherwise? Robert. Wasn't there a part of the last chapter in Deuteronomy where Moshe says that because these people won't remember the original event, that they're to write down, like homework, you know, the entire Torah on stone, so they can read it again before them as a perpetual sign? Isn't there some commandment like that? Where they it's a, it's what you're, we're describing two different things which are related but not the same thing. And this is not a replay. This that. is not that. No, no, this is source number five which you can look at for yourself, and we'll look at it together in just a moment. What you're describing is what's called the Shirah of Ha'azinu, the Song of Ha'azinu, which is a warning to the people, that I know, Moses says, that after I die, you will surely fall apart, and this song will be there to say, I told you so. That's why Ha'azinu is there. God is foreseeing that there will be a disastrous period, and then the Israelites will say, where was God? And God will say, actually, no, where were you? Right? That's what Ha'azinu is for. That's what you're alluding to, and, and that's also very important. But this... Altar is source number five. So let's look at it. As soon as, biyom, on the day that you have crossed the Jordan into the land the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones, coat them with plaster, and inscribe with them all the words of this teaching. Upon crossing the Jordan, you shall set up these stones, about which I charge you this day, on Mount Eval, and coat them with plaster. So when should they set up this altar? As soon as they cross the Jordan. So Rashi and later commentators don't miss that. It's very obvious that everything that Joshua does is incredibly faithful to God's command. So if God said, do it as soon as you cross the Jordan, Rashi and many later commentators are convinced, well, this story at the end of chapter 8 must have happened prior. It must have happened at the end of chapter 4. Not in its current location. So the eyes takes you back. Correct. It's not Bob sequential. In other words, it doesn't, the, the Hebrew, it doesn't prove that it's out of order, but it doesn't force you to say that it's in order. You're, you're, you're exactly right. So Rashi and several commentators say that this story occurred prior to Jericho and the eye, based on the fact that God commanded, do it as soon as you cross. There's another view in the Jerusalem Talmud of somebody named Rabbi Yishmael. And Rabbi Yishmael argues the opposite. He thinks that this story of the altar happened much later. It happened after the entire land was conquered and distributed. And we'll get back to his view in a little while. But according to all of those, we're still back with our question, which, again, I'm not trying to write a history book of you know, the chronological timeline. That's not what this is about at all. The issue is, granting that there's at least a reasonable possibility that this is not in its proper sequence, well, once again, why would the author put it here? What is he trying to teach? In other words, that's the, that's the, that's the important question. It's, it's never about the what happened. It's all about... Let's grant that Rashi and co. are right, that this may be out of sequence. Well, then what is he trying to teach by putting this passage here? Yeah. Maybe it's again to remind us that he's really doing what he's supposed to be doing. This was commanded in the Sefer and we're going to split them up and we're going to have this ceremony and... (laughs) 
There's no question that this passage does that 100%, but still, but why not just move it back to where it belongs? Meaning, put it at the end of chapter 4. Joshua crossed the Jordan River as per God's command, miracle. Then Joshua did exactly what was commanded in the Torah to do it right away. Because maybe after the eye, you're wondering about whether things are going to get back on track. Oh, oh. So there you go. So by putting it here, it's teaching the lesson that the last three chapters have been trying to teach us, right? Faithfulness is what's going to win the day. So if you just put it in its proper place, you'd miss that. Then that's when it happened. Okay, Joshua is faithful. Then it would teach that Joshua is faithful, but the book is trying to teach something much more than Joshua is faithful. The book does a swell job at letting us know that Joshua is very faithful. But what it also needs to teach is that faithfulness is going to win the day. So after they win at Jericho because they were faithful, then they lose at the eye because they sinned. Then they win at eye because the sin is gone. Faithfulness wins the day. Ta-da! This is the place to put this altar. Now we can write the Torah on an altar and proclaim to everybody. So I think that that's certainly a lesson that comes out of this, yeah? Well, in a way, the same thing you said, but I would say that... Uh, where do you put the moral of the story at when the story is done? And, it, and I think, in a sense, this represents the moral of the story, as you, and both of you effectively said. Right, so. But it's the end of the story, and that's where you put the moral. Correct. But so that, that's the point, that the placement actually is what drives the point home. Yeah. Well, Correct. That's where you, what Good. you do with the moral of the story. Yes. So there's a contemporary scholar named L. Daniel Hawk. I have no idea who this person is, but I read as much stuff as I can get my hands on. That's the way that it goes. I'm, I'm always curious, because somebody's always going to hit me with a different perspective. And L. Daniel Hawk made one fabulous point in his commentary on the book of Joshua that I, I, I love it. I think it's truly fantastic, and, and it's really good. He lines up chapters 6, 7, and 8 in one big flow. And I kind of like this point, and I think you might like it too. Chapter 6, the main event is Israelite conquest of Jericho. But he focuses on the fact that it's Israelite's conquest of Jericho, but also the salvation of Rachav the prostitute and her family. And the very next chapter is the Israelites lose at the eye because of a sin. That's the main story. But what you also have is the execution of Achan and his family because they sinned. So he argues the the flow suggests, and this is correct, by the way, not just for these two chapters, it's correct across the book, It's not an ethnic war of Israelites against Canaanites here. The Canaanites are not bad because they are a different race or bloodline or family or whatever it is. It's because, by and large, they're really horrible people. And the reason why God is giving the Israelites the land is because they are entrusted to be incredibly good people. But, says L. Daniel Hawk, any Canaanite who acts like an Israelite is treated like an Israelite. So Rachav and her family, who sided with Israel and joined their side. Okay, welcome to the family. We have no fuss against you because of your Canaanite blood. What do we care? We don't even care about what your career choices have been, as long as that stops. And so Rachav the Canaanite is embraced with open arms. And any Israelite who behaves like a Canaanite is treated like a Canaanite. So Achan and his family need to go because they violated God. And suddenly they're out. So this is a good point in general. This is my all-time favorite midrash in this, in this neck of the woods over here. I, I love this one. The sages of the Talmud are always trying to piece parts of the Bible together that don't come... There are a lot of loose ends, and that's, that's fine. It's okay to have a lot of loose ends. Sages don't like these loose ends. They tie them all up. So in this case, Rachav converted and joined the people of Israel. Well, we've got to find her a shidduch. Right? Don't you know? We've got to find her somebody to marry. We need, we need a husband for her. Right? Sages are always worrying about things like this as well. They should. It's a very important issue. And so they have to find her a shidduch. And as long as we're on that subject, you know, Joshua needs a shidduch. We never hear anything about a wife or a family. The leader of the people of Israel, my goodness, he better have a wife. And so the sages make a shidduch between Rachav, the Canaanite prostitute, and Joshua, the prophet of God. Right? Midrashically, they're married. Now, what I love about this particular Talmudic passage, other than this is a, yet another one of gazillions of examples of tying together loose ends, is what they're saying is, okay, let's think about it. In our perception of the world, there's humanity, and Canaanites are at the bottom of that. They're the lowest, most immoral people on the planet. Okay, then Rachav is a prostitute, meaning she is the bottom rung of Canaanite culture. 
But if she is a sincere convert, we embrace her with open arms and she can marry a prophet of God. Isn't that fantastic? You couldn't ask for a better pro-conversion statement than that, ever. It's, 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 it's truly amazing. And again, they didn't have to link them up in marriage. But that's the way the Talmud works, but it also teaches a very profound point. But I think that's what L. Daniel Hawk is trying to do, right? Without quoting the Talmud, he doesn't know that. But what he's saying is that Rachab belongs to the people of Israel because she's accepted Israelitism. And Achan has to go because he's essentially become a Canaanite. Zohar? I'm just going back because I'm still bothered by this, but if we're trying to show Joshua's faithfulness, why are we putting this passage at the end of chapter 8 as opposed to right before B.I.? The way that, that Suri and I set it up, again, I'm not even trying to persuade, I'm just I'm advancing a possibility, which I happen, to, I happen to buy it, but you don't need to. This is the culmination of the sequence, that they won in Jericho because they were faithful. They lost in the eye because they were sinful. They won in the eye once they were faithful again. So this story is like this covenantal moment of proclaiming to the world, and specifically to Israel, most importantly, that faithfulness is going to get us the land. That's the gist of that. But L. Daniel Hawk picks up on a different detail in source number four that I completely missed. Again, I bless Hawk big time for this whole sequential argument because I missed it entirely. He picks up on a little tiny detail that occurs twice in this passage, that as many times as I had read it, I wasn't paying enough attention. So all of a sudden he jumped it out. In light of this, Rachav as an Israelite and Achan now as a Canaanite. Well, in verse 33, still in source four, all Israel, stranger and citizen alike. Who exactly are these Gerim? Who are the strangers? The answer is that already here we see that anybody who's willing to join the people of Israel and embrace the values of the Torah, well, whoever these people are, I don't know if they're Canaanites or other peoples, but there are Gerim right in this passage. Anybody, who's going to jo- anybody who wants to join this Torah vision, welcome to the team. And in case that's not good enough for you, look at ver- verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua failed to read in the presence of the entire assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the strangers. Twice in one passage. It feels the need to emphasize the Gerim. It, it's, it's fantastic. It really drives home the point that Hawk makes about Rachav. Rachav is the supreme Canaanite who has joined the people of Israel, but evidently there were others. Okay? So that's phase two. So far we've seen chapters one and two and what that, one through three and what that might lead to, and, and chapter six through eight and what that might lead to. Yeah, Sorry to do this, but the, I don't see the word in the Hebrew for, the, for strangers. Yeah, okay. Where will we'll the last one? Thirty-three in Hebrew. Oh, it's in Hebrew. Kager ka Huh? He's saying twice. I see the thirty-five. It's in Yeah, JPS moves things around. I'm sorry that sometimes it really moves things around, but but all the same. But it's a fair translation, even if they they usually do that for the sake of clarity. But the gear the gear is in both. And so, okay, so that's 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 point number two. We need point number three. Let me let me do point number three and make sure I can I can pull that, and then we'll we'll have time hopefully at the end for a couple of questions. The very last two chapters of the book, chapters 23 and 24, you have two successive covenants. And this baffles our commentators quite a bit, because after all, covenants are good. Joshua giving his last words to the people, good. But logistically, this is a disaster. Right? And so let, let's, look at, let's look at these two covenants. After This is already at the end of the book. So here we are, post-conquest of most of the land, distribution of the land. The tribes are now moving to their individual tribal settlements. Much later, in source number six, after the Lord had given Israel rest from all the enemies around them, and when Joshua was old and well advanced in in years. So here we are picturing old Joshua pulls everybody together for his last farewell. Moses had it easier in a sense. He was in the desert, so everybody was kind of together. So when he wanted to say the book of Deuteronomy or bless the tribes, everybody was kind of just there. right? So however he addressed the people always is how he would address the people at the end of his life. Joshua couldn't do that because people are all over the country. So he has to to summon the elders back. So here we go. 
Verse 2. Joshua summoned all Israel, their elders and commanders, their magistrates and officials, and said to them, I have grown old and am advanced in years. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all those nations on your account. For it was the Lord your God who fought for you. See, I have allotted to you by your tribes the territory of these nations that still remain, and that of all the nations that I have destroyed from the Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. The Lord your God himself will thrust them out on your account and drive them out to make way for you, and you shall possess their land as the Lord has promised you. But be most resolute. Hebrew, by the way, is v'chazaktem me'od. If you remember last week, everybody was busy telling him to be strong and courageous. Well, now at the end of his life, he's the strengthener, right? He's come a long way since the insecure moments at the beginning of his career. Be most resolute to observe faithfully all that is written in the book of the teaching of Moses without ever deviating from it to the right or to the left. This is exactly what God told Joshua in chapter 1. Joshua said, be strong and and resolute, keep the Torah, not deviating right to the left. So here at the end of his life, Joshua is saying the same thing to the people. In fact, this sounds like what we now call a literary inclusio. You spell that with the word like inclusion and just get that last N out of there. So literary inclusio. The idea is that these are bookends to the book. The book started with this theme where God commands Joshua to be faithful and be resolute and to not deviate to the left or the right. I'm such a lefty. You know that it says to the right or to the left, right? But anyway, fine. So I can't help myself sometimes. And now at the end of his life, Joshua brings everybody together and he becomes the God-like figure. He's the prophet who's now conveying God's word to the people to be strong and resolute and to not deviate to the right or to the left. In fact, I'm expecting that the book should end right around now. Joshua did exactly what he needed to do. This is his book of Deuteronomy. He's gotten everybody together, his last will and testament. He's telling them to be faithful into the next generation. He's mimicking God's language. And if that's not good enough for you, I skipped a few verses, but here we go to verse 14. I am now going the way of all the earth. Acknowledge with all your heart and soul that not one of the good things that the Lord your God promised you has failed to happen. happen. They have all come true for you. Not a single one has failed. But just as every good thing that the Lord your God promised you has been fulfilled for you, so the Lord can bring upon you every evil thing until he has wiped you off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you break the covenant that the Lord your God enjoined upon you and you go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the Lord's anger will burn against you and you shall quickly perish from the good land that he has given you. In English, this never works. Let me just read you some of the Hebrew and this may sound a little bit familiar. Right? The last couple of verses from, te- from 16 and on. Sounds familiar? Sounds way more familiar in the Hebrew, right? This is just out of the Shema. Second paragraph of the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 11. So Joshua is not just doing a Deuteronomy of his own by calling everybody together. He's even quoting very generously and using the same themes and making the same points. All good. The next verse that I'm expecting here is, and then Joshua died at the ripe old age of 110, and everybody buried him, maybe they even cried. It'll happen, that verse will happen. And suddenly you get this chapter 24. Just when you think it's over, Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem in source number 7. Okay, that's somewhere else. That means he had to get everybody together. After this clearly last will and testament, he suddenly says, okay, I have an idea, let's all go to Shechem. So he gets everybody together. He summoned Israel's elders and commanders, magistrates and officers, and they presented themselves before God. Then Joshua said to all the people, some of this will sound very familiar if you do the Pesach Seder, Thus said the Lord, the God of Israel, In olden times, your forefathers, Terach, father of Abraham and father of Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from beyond the Euphrates and led him through the whole land of Canaan and multiplied his offspring. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And gave Esau the hill country of Seir as his possession, while Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I said, Moses and Aaron, and they got them out of there, and there were plagues, and God redeemed you. Verse 14. Now therefore revere the God, revere the Lord, this is Joshua talking, and serve him with undivided loyalty. Put away the gods that your forefathers served beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. The message of this historical survey, by the way, is... Our ancestors have always had choices. Some of our ancestors, that's why it starts with Terach. It's very unusual that we start any historical survey in the Bible with Terach. We usually just either start with Abraham. 
He's the founder of our nation after all, even though Tarach happens to be his dad. Or start with the Exodus. Get right down to the foundation of our people as a nation. That's even a more normal place to start. But here Joshua starts with Terach. And that's because he's trying to make his point. Nobody, it's, it's the same point as the whole Shior. Prophets they never survey history or review history to review history. They're very selective. And they're trying to teach a lesson. And Joshua has a very clear point, which is, we've had ancestors. Some of them were faithful to God. And some of them were idolaters. And guess which ones lived in the land of Israel and were promised the land of Israel? It's the ones who served God. Terach, sorry, Mesopotamia. Right, Nahor, also, just stay over there. Esav, sorry, pal, out of here. You know, he's going to go to Seir. You get land. You can be safe and secure and all the good stuff, but you're not getting the land of Israel. And the reason why Joshua is surveying history this way is because now he's going to give Israelites that choice. Hey, guys, we're in Israel now. We have the choice that all of our ancestors had. We could either serve God or we could serve pagan deities, the gods of Canaan. If we serve God, we will stay in the land, right? And if we serve pagan deities, well, look what happened to our other ancestors who took that route. We won't be here anymore. That's the point of his survey. So here comes the now, verse 14. Now, therefore, revere the Lord and serve him with undivided loyalty. Put away the gods that your forefathers served beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Or, if you are loath to serve the Lord... Choose this day which ones you are going to serve, the gods that your forefathers served beyond the Euphrates, or those of the Amorites in the, whose land you are settled. But I and my household will serve the Lord. And the people right away say, we are serving God, we owe him big, he helped us out. We're all on God's side. And Joshua's like, you sure? Yeah, we're sure. It must have been a really great moment. I love it. It's a fabulous covenantal moment. And then on that day in Shechem, Joshua made a covenant for the people and he made a fixed rule for them. Joshua recorded all of this in a book of divine instruction. He took a great stone and set it up at the foot of the oak in the sacred precinct of the Lord. And then the next verses, which were too sad to put in the source sheets, are, and then Joshua died. Right? Okay, so the death part finally happens. But our commentators are utterly baffled. As beautiful as this covenant is, what in the world do you need it for? We already had chapter 23. Right? And if you want to say this to them, just say it wherever you were, in, in, near Joshua's home in the tribe of Ephraim. Don't go to Shechem. So why do you need two covenants at all? If you do need two covenants, just say it all in one place. Why move everybody? This is a big logistical nightmare if you're dealing with, if you have two people, okay, take a walk, get on a donkey, whatever you do. But if you're dealing with good hunks of the nation, that's a big schlep to leave the Galil and come on over to Shechem, especially if you just recently were over at Joshua's house in Ephraim. So Radak has nothing great to say here. It really drives me crazy. Radak, one of the greatest commentators of all time, living in 13th century in Provence in southern France, he looks at these two covenants and he's like, well, you can never say it too many times. We've got to serve God. And Joshua felt at the end of his life, just get it in there. All right, true. I'm all in favor of his message, but I don't know. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't sound quite right. A Barbanel shows up in the 16th century and he looks at these and he says, you know what the problem is? Joshua made this great speech in chapter 23, and he said, okay, guys, God has done everything for us. We have so much gratitude, but we better watch out because otherwise we could be in trouble. And Joshua was sort of hoping that the people would say, amen, but there's silence. So Joshua hears that silence. He's like, hmm, how committed are they really? I know. I'm going to haul everybody to Shechem, and I'm going to get them to talk. Right? And so in chapter 24, they ratify the covenant. All right, so that at least is a good dramatic thing. But again, it's very hard to say that Joshua is disappointed by the non-response in chapter 23. This is normal. And Moses blesses the people at the end of his life. The people don't say anything. Okay, it makes sense. Give Moses the last word. He's Moses, after all. Let him, let him bless the people, and he can die, and, and we move on to Joshua. So the answers don't quite... They're not wrong. They're possible, but they don't really seem to be a compelling answer. And maybe the best answer is that chapter 24 didn't happen after 23. Maybe chapter 24 happened a long time ago. Chapter 23 is the speech that Joshua gave at the end of his life. It even says that he is old. So Radak and Abarbanel are both assuming that 24 happened after 23, because chapter 24 is after chapter 23, geographically. But that doesn't mean that it happened then. Right? It could have very well happened earlier. And, you know, I suggest this also. He and I don't always think the same way, but in this particular case, we're spot on 
both spot on the same page. Rabbi Menachem Liebtag in, in Israel also, also has the same way of looking at all of this, that chapter 24 occurred much earlier. And I'll even tell you when it occurred. It occurred exactly at the same ceremony that we read about in chapter 8. It's all in Shechem. Right? When they did the ceremony of Grizim and Eval, they also did this. That's when Joshua made this proclamation and covenant. It all happened at the same time. And logistically, by the way, this is great. In the reading of Rabbi Ritag, and, uh, which I'm accepting as well, the Israelites were at a camp called Gilgal. That's where they set up shop after they crossed the Jordan. And they then used that as their base while they conquered various cities, and then the people moved out to their tribes. Well, before they moved out to their tribes, that's when Joshua did this ceremony. He got everybody over to Shechem, wrote the Torah on stones, declared that faithfulness to the Torah brings blessing, and non-faithfulness, unfaithfulness brings curses. The people all said, Amen. And Joshua said, Okay, everybody, here's the moment of choice. We can accept God, and then we'll get the land, or we can accept pagan deities, and then, well, we're not going to last here very long. That's when he said all of these things. Then the Israelites moved into their tribes. Several years went by. Joshua got old. And at the end of his life, he called everybody together and said chapter 23. That's, that's what happened. Okay, if this theory is right, so then why is chapter 24 last? And the answer is, because this is the most amazing covenant in all of biblical history. This is incredible. In fact, our commentators scratch their heads. Several commentators are very baffled. Joshua, think about it. Joshua, the prophetic leader of Israel, Moses' successor, gets up in front of all the nation at Shechem, says, hey guys, we have a choice today. You can serve God or you can serve idols. Really? A prophet gives choices like that? I can't imagine Moses ever giving that sort of option. Right? Moses would get up and say, serve God. The end. Right? There's, there's no or other deities. And there's this thing as or other deities. You can't serve other deities. That's against the rules. Joshua is giving them a choice. So several commentators say, oh, it's rhetoric. He knew that they were going to reject the pagan deities, which is possible. Fair, fair reading of the text, that Joshua is using this moment to soup everybody up, they all accept God, and then he's like, good, good covenant, we, this worked. But Rashi doesn't think so. Rashi thinks that this is a genuine moment of choice. Rashi says when Joshua said this, he meant it, yeah? The last parts of you know, Moshe is always saying, well, if you do, don't do this, this is what's going to happen. If you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. You're right, but they're threats. Moses doesn't say, you have a, you, oh, sure, go ahead and serve other deities. He says, you better watch out. If you serve other deities, then God will be wrathful and you will suffer and you will have droughts and punished. And... Right, but for him, there's no other option. In other words, there, we all have free will. You're, you're exactly right. But the way Moses always frames it, he doesn't genuinely say, hey, guys, choose God or choose other deities. He's saying, we all have a choice, but you better make the right one. And if you don't, well, very bad things will happen. That's what Joshua himself said in chapter 23. Same, that's a Moses theme, right? Serve God, we owe him big, we should be loyal to him, but if we don't, we, we can suffer consequences. That sounds like Moses. In other words, there's always a choice. But here Joshua really seems to be offering a choice. It's a covenantal moment where the people say, we accept God. Sam? It seems that Joshua is banking on what you just said, that he's a man of the people. And he's saying... And he, he knows they like him. And he says, you may see. Now, As for me, this is going to be my choice. A very human kind of... Uh, very human. You know. He's role modeling. I mean, yeah. He sets himself up that uh, way. <clears throat> hmm? No, very good. Yeah, Sherry. Um, I'm not so sure that he's presenting them with a choice. I think what he's doing is recognizing the fact that they see themselves as having a choice. And look, guys, basically... This is what it is if you choose correctly. But you know what? If you decide because that's what you think is an alternate choice, you do that, forget about it. I mean, obviously, not in those Sure. Words, there, there's no question that you're right. These are all very fair readings. There's no question that there's always an element of rhetoric, especially in this sort of drama. However, I'm just, I want to say how Rashi frames this, because I think it is just so fabulous. The one thing that frustrates me about this, Rashi, maybe you can help. I've been looking for years. It's very clear to me that he's citing a midrash. This isn't his own original interpretation. I cannot find the Midrash anywhere. 
It's got to be there. It sounds like the language of the Midrash. It doesn't sound like the language of Rashi by himself. But can't find it. So for now, it's just all Rashi. But I will, I will, you know, I will, I will, I will go to my grave one day, many, many years from now, still thinking that Rashi's quoting a Midrash, and hopefully by then I'll even know what he's quoting. You mean but the Rashi here. This Rashi is coming up. Let me explain the outside before we look at it inside. Rashi, it's a very profound point that he's going to make. He says that you know all of our faithfulness as Jews goes back to the covenant at Mount Sinai. We all know that, right? Because our ancestors willingly accepted the covenant then, that makes it eternally binding on all later generations of Jews. That's how it works. Everybody knows that. That's the system upon which Torah and all of Judaism is based. The heart of it all is that moment of revelation at Sinai. Rashi goes out on a limb here and says, but there's a flaw in that covenant. The Talmud is a different flaw, but we'll talk about the Talmud another time. Let's talk about Rashi's concern with the flaw. The flaw in 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 the whole point is that the Israelites are in a desert. Let's say they said no. God is like, all right, no more mana or miraculous wells for you. You're fried. You're in the middle of nowhere. What in the world are they going to do? And that means that their level of free will acceptance is weak. Yes, they had a choice at Sinai, and they willfully ratified the covenant. But how much choice did they really have if they're in a desert? Oh, but now they're in their land. They've conquered the land. They're about to go home to their tribal allotments. For the first time, they're truly free. And therefore, Joshua is essentially re-giving the Torah to them to correct that hole from Sinai. The Sinai covenant is the one that is eternally binding, but Joshua has to fix the hole. Now that we're in our land, we have to re-accept the Torah because the acceptance wasn't full as long as we were stuck in, marooned in the desert. Very profound point. And so let's hear Rashi inside in source 8. I love it. Joshua foresaw that they would rebel in the days of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is 6th century BCE at the time of the destruction of the first temple when the Jewish community genuinely felt that the God-Israel covenant was done. The temple was destroyed. The Jews went into exile. This was it. They really thought, let's become Babylonians. Let's assimilate. This was the first cataclysmic moment like that. We've had others that have been very trying for our people. But this is the first of those. Where the people of Israel as a nation thought the God-Israel was, it, relationship had been finished. That, that was the end of it. So Joshua foresaw, says Rashi, that they would rebel in the days of Ezekiel and say, we will be like the nations. They wanted to become just regular pagan Babylonians. Therefore, he made it more difficult now. In this vein, he answered them in the days of Ezekiel. And what you have in mind shall never come to pass. That's Ezekiel talking in the 6th century. Again, hundreds and hundreds of years after our story. As I live, declares the Lord God, I will reign over you with a strong hand. Now comes Rashi. You already accepted the covenant upon yourselves in the days of Joshua. Rashi imagines, and again, I'm sure that he's quoting a Midrash. I just can't find it. So the Midrash that I can't find imagines that when Ezekiel fired back at the people saying, no, the God-Israel covenant is eternal. Don't you know that we, now I'm waiting for him to say, accepted it at Sinai. That's not what he says. He says, you accepted it in the time of Joshua. The eternal binding covenant that Ezekiel invokes in this Midrash, that Rashi is apparently quoting, is the binding covenant that Joshua is doing here in chapter 24. And you may not say we accepted the covenant in the days of Moses only so that we could enter the land. In other they could always use that as an excuse. Now that they're in the Babylonian exile, they could say, well, we only accepted at Sinai because we were marooned in the desert. In the days of Joshua, you had already entered and you nevertheless accepted. That's brilliant. It's fantastic. It's worthy of Rashi, right? But, but, but not only is it fantastic. So to me, that's why this chapter had to be the last chapter. Because this chapter is the most important chapter of the book. This is the climax. This is what the book of Joshua is all about. Namely, the people of Israel have re-accepted the Torah in their own land. Right? That's what this book is about. Freely. They've accepted it freely. That is single-handedly the most important theme. So let's just review the themes that we've picked up over the course of the evening. There are three major discussions that we've had where there seem to be chapters that are written out of chronological sequence. And again, that's a tip-off to us. Major lessons are happening here. The editor or author wanted to 
change from the chronological order in order to teach major points. Chapter 1 and 2, we learned about the significance of the succession of Moses to Joshua and from the succession of the Torah to the book of Joshua. In chapter 8, we talked about the centrality of faithfulness is what will get the people of Israel their land and sinfulness will not. And then it has the bonus lesson of any Canaanite who acts like an Israelite is an Israelite and is treated as such. And any Israelite that acts as a Canaanite is treated as a Canaanite. And then we have this chapter 24 thing, which I think is just grand. is placed at the end, even though it happened many years earlier, probably, to teach that Israel has freely accepted the covenant of Israel, meaning the Torah, in their land without overt dependence on God. We always depend on God, but you depend on God differently when you have an army in your own land. That's when you really need to have the proper faith and free will choices. In the desert, Israelites had no choice but to believe in God, even though they struggled over there at all. So that becomes a climactic moment. So the long and the short of it is that this shiur was about three major points. I hope we covered I think we covered a lot of material to boot. But it was really just about this one theme about looking at chronological deviations, or at least potential chronological deviations, and how they could point to the key themes in a book, in this case, the book of Joshua, which brings us to coming attractions. So next week, I don't know what room we'll be in anymore. We've had three different rooms. We're getting to see the whole KJ Ramaz campus, which is great. I mean, there was a, there's a noisy construction going on, apparently, outside of our usual chapel. Next week, we should be back in the chapel. So assume that, but if you hear from me otherwise, I will... I'll let you know. Make sure that your, your emails are operational. And next week we will talk about the transition as we move into the book of Judges from the book of Joshua to the book of Judges. Joshua is the golden age of Israel where everybody's righteous and wonderful and excellent happily ever after. And then Judges, oh yeah, yeah, I don't want to depress you too much. I'll save that for next week and then I'll go to town depressing you. It's a very depressing book and, and we'll talk about that important transition. Have a wonderful night.